Lost all my money but a two dollar bill I'm on my long journey home Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Kentucky Route Zero. Developed by Cardboard Computer, Kentucky Route Zero was released episodically for PC starting in 2013 and finishing up in 2020. It's recently been released for a host of other modern systems as the TV edition, uh, which is actually how I played it on Nintendo Switch. Oh, I got it on Steam because I get everything on Steam, it seems. Uh, But if I remember correctly, I think it was three or four years ago when me and Brian were discussing interesting games that we could play. Um, I had heard interesting things about Kentucky Route Zero without knowing anything about the game, and Brian unfortunately informed me it was still in development. It was released (laughs) as an episodic game, but I figured, you know, uh, I want to wait till I can get the whole thing all at once instead of having to wait in between episodes. I like to binge, you know, TV shows, video games, whatever you want. Um... So we waited till it came out, and that only took another four or five years. <laughs> That's right. Uh, unexpected seven years in development here, but... Nine years. I think it first started development in 2011. Yeah, good point. Yeah, seven years between the, all of the different releases, one through five. You know, and I, I spent the last, you know, seven years looking upon this game from afar, and now I finally got to see what it was all about as well. I actually ended up playing this game back when it first came out on TV Edition in January of 2020, because I was eagerly anticipating it so much. Um, but, you know, I, I revisited a little bit of it to sort of refamiliarize myself with the feel, but honestly, I, I didn't end up doing a full replay because... This game, when you play through it, it does leave an impression on you, and I do feel like what you did the first time through is sort of your canonical playthrough, you know? Huh. Uh, I'd be interested in getting into this a little bit later, how much difference there was between your playthroughs. Because this game is a very interesting sort of game. It kind of frames itself as an adventure, a kind of point-and-click, go-through, solve puzzles kind of thing, but... Not really. You quickly find out there's no puzzles in the game, so to speak of, and you're really just walking around and talking to people. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and to that point, I, I didn't end up replaying it. Like I said, I, I only like I revisited a scene or two, but that was just to sort of remind myself of, of things. I, I didn't feel right replaying it, <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Like I, I think I I think I could now just, you know, now that I'm going to get out all of my thoughts on my first playthrough and maybe I can look back and experience some new things, but, um, it did, it, you know, it's a game that leaves an impression. So, um, just going off the dome on what we think is, uh, what this game is all about is I think going to be enlightening for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. Let's try to do a little plot summary. Um, so you're playing a antique furniture delivery man named Conway, who's tasked to find five dogwood drive. Um, and then you're playing as Shannon, a down-on-her-luck TV repair woman, who joins up with him for the journey. And as you go through the five different acts, you pick up more and more different characters who come along with you. Yeah, that's right. It, it mostly takes place um, in and around uh, the area of Kentucky, around sort of the Mammoth Cave area, north of Bowling Green. Um, 
you know, initially you're above ground in, in normal life, but then eventually you end up on the Zero, uh, which is sort of a subterranean roadway filled with unique and crazy characters. And that's sort of where uh, a lot of the game's most most interesting moments come from. Um, before we get into all of uh, that and maybe our, our thoughts on the whole thing, I think it's worth noting that this game and Cardboard Computer was basically started off of an $8,000 Kickstarter <laughs> right back in 2011. Um, I believe their goal was $6,500 because that would have yeah. been more than enough to make the game. Hilarious when you think about that lasting over the course of, um, you know, 10 years of development roughly. It's... Um, <laughs> It, it's wild, and, you know, I'm glad they got what they needed to, but this was back in the time before, like, million-dollar Kickstarters and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a different era. Kickstarter was fairly new when mm -hmm. this game first was sponsored on it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about, like, some of this game's contemporaries at the time, like... Um, when the first act of it came out in 2013, its contemporaries would have been things like Dear Esther and eventually Gone Home. I think one of the strong contemporaries at that time was a game called The Walking Dead, which also mm. was delivered in an episodic format and was kind of a conversational Choices Matter sort of game before Choices Matter became a overused Steam tag. I thought about that and comparing these two games and sort of how they do storytelling. And I think it's really interesting that in this game, when you do the dialogue and the conversation, there's nothing like what The Walking Dead did with X will remember that, right? You just say what you say, it's done, and you move on. There's no um, dialogue tree to exhaust. There's no doubling back on a certain conversation. You're locked in when you choose what you choose for a given character. I think one of the interesting things about this game, and this became more pronounced as they moved through the different acts, was that there really weren't any puzzles. And I don't just mean puzzles in terms of, uh, you know, like, um, shoot the cheese with a gun so it looks like Swiss cheese to the blind mouse. Kind of like <laughs> your standard wacky adventure game puzzles. But I mean, even... Inside the dialogue in the conversation, there weren't really any puzzles or things you had to unlock. Uh, the developers talked about this for a while. They, uh, there was a GDC talk they gave on the difference between puzzles and mystery and how they transitioned from one to the other as they went through development. With a puzzle, uh, you can get enough information that you have a solution, as convoluted and Rube Goldberg-esque as that solution might be. With a mystery, you never have enough information to uh, to make a decision and feel confident that you're getting what you want. Uh, the d developers talked about, even in the conversations, they wanted you to just pick things without knowing or without trying to have some sort of metagame strategy about where that choice would lead you. Yeah, I, th I think it's really awesome how they do this, and I think that there's a lot of... Um, really individualized outcomes that you get from that. Uh, basically, the action on the page remains the same. There's no, like you said, metagame about getting an optimal outcome. And there's tons of hidden things as a result of this, right? It, it's based on mysteries, like you said, but I think it's also based on surprise. There's a lot of hidden things in this game that um, Cardboard Computer 
invested a lot of effort into that most folks just won't see. And I think that's like such a, um, such a mark of confidence from a developer when they can, you know, for lack of a better phrase, hide their light under a bushel. It turns out that's not a terrible thing to do sometimes when it delights the player when they stumble upon that light unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're able to choose as a player how far you go into this. There's a whole lot of exploration of spelunking, if you will, through the caverns of the zero in order to find different little pieces of world building. One of the things that made that work successfully is how interesting some of these things were. Um, This game was very heavily influenced by a literary genre called magical realism. Um, And what I consider the founding author, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, after he wrote A Hundred Years of Solitude, he explained where he got this kind of tone of voice from. And it it was from his grandparents when he was growing up. Um, They would tell these completely fabulous inventions and tall tales and the same tone of voice that they used to discuss what they had for breakfast in the morning. And (laughs) Garcia Marquez took that into a whole genre where... All these crazy things happen, but nobody bats an eyelash at them. And you see that same kind of thing in Kentucky Route Zero. It, it's definitely true in that it's uh, the fantastical is made mundane, right? Like a, a prime example of this to me is um, the fact that uh, one of the characters, Ezra's brother, is a 30-foot-tall bald eagle. Who moves houses around every day. <laughs> yeah, and no one seems to, to really mind that at all. I think one of my favorite examples of this was in the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces in Act 2. On the third floor of the office building, there's just a room full of bears. They don't do anything. You can walk (laughs) by and they'll just stare at you. But it's just, you know, bears in an office building. And the difference between magical realism and something like absurdism is the fact that people aren't reacting to it, right? Like, it isn't, oh my gosh, this crazy thing just happened. It's, oh yeah, you know, the the bears are in the office, uh, you know, on their normal floor, and they're holding their annual, you know, quarterly shareholder meeting about who gets the <laughs> picnic baskets or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, all in all, this gave, gives this game just a really interesting and unique flavor, and it's a genre you don't often see the depths of plumbed so thoroughly, um, because if there's one thing this game has, it is just a ton of different allegories, references, and metaphors for um, you know all these various things, callbacks, if you will, to the entire artistic history of magical realism and a bunch of other artistic movements. Uh, this is a game that's just ripe with this stuff, and there's no way we'd ever hit all of it because we would be here for you know dozens of hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I agree with that. I do want to point out one particular thing I enjoyed. Um, there was in Act 3, a tower of flaming computer parts. The scene was called the Hall of the Mountain King. And on top of that, you learn of this eccentric genius hermit who's creating this project called Xanadu. Uh, This has a couple of references, a couple of cultural touchstones, which I think kind of shows the um, extent, the breadth of their tastes and their influences. Uh, Xanadu is from a poem called Kublai Khan um, by, 
uh, I think Coolidge maybe, I'm not sure, one of the romantic guys, uh, but tell me if this first stanza sta- sounds familiar. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Elf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Sunless Sea. Uh, that reminds me of, well, one, the video game Sunless Sea, but um, it reminds me of Kentucky Route Zero. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's the uh, river, the Echo, the, what the river you go down in Act 4, and they do have like a Sunless Lake there. Yeah, it, that's really interesting. I mean, that's one, but it, I think it's also worth noting that Xanadu is a reference to an early, I think, internet project, right? The project Xanadu, which was um, sort of an early prototypical internet that was overtaken by, you know, the real internet, the, the current iteration of the internet, the DARPA net evolution that came about out of the 70s military industrial complex project. Uh, that's correct. It was a project by Ted Nelson, started in the 1960s. And the crazy idea he had was hypertext. Like you could read a do- you could uh, read a document somewhere, and click a link, and then you'd go to another document. You didn't have to read it linearly. Um, you could hop back and forth. If that sounds like the internet, if that sounds like Wikipedia. You're not wrong. Obviously, some very important things there, and actually, there is some interesting hypertext lineage that comes into play in uh, one of the later acts of this game as well. You know, the story's so allegorical, vague, and symbolic throughout its entire thing that um, it's hard to sort of, at, at first, understand what it's even about, right? Important plot threads can just sort of fizzle out, and everything, as I was saying earlier, is so intensely individualized based on your input but the action on the page remains largely largely the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you are kind of choosing how the characters respond to what's going on, but you aren't choosing what they do next. And this actually, this game lines up well with some earlier thoughts I had on video games as a medium. There's an article I wrote a few years ago called The Actor and the Audience. And in that article, I go out, in about how um, a player, an active player of a game, is both the actor of the script and the audience for that script, too. The player's deciding what they do, but unlike a musician who's deciding how a particular piece should be played, um, they're at the same time as deciding how to do things, they are the audience seeing the action unroll from that third-person perspective. And a good game designer is like a good director who gives the actors cues, gives them enough room to play around with, um, that they have some idea of where they're going. I think it lined up really well with how this game saw things, too. You're, you're sort of an actor in this game. You're also sort of the director. Um, it's definitely an interesting game in that you're not... Um, actively participating in outcomes, but you are actively participating in the way they're arrived at. Um, And you're also very much involved in the tone of the piece that is incumbent upon getting there. So I guess what you're doing is telling the game how you want it to be, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is interesting being in a conversation with a game like that, but yet not really having any input on the events that 
unfold? No, I think it's um, you don't have input and like you can't decide what the ending's going to be. Um, but again, that's like a you know, if you're playing Macbeth in a play, you don't get to decide how the play ends. You just get to decide how you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You, you there, there is a play called Macbeth and you know how it ends and you know how, or you know, what events will get you to arrive at that conclusion. But it's been portrayed many ways over the years. And, you know, one performance of it can be drastically different than another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this game uh, took that philosophy to heart and is a great example of the great things that can come from seeing games in that manner. One other thing I want to touch on on, in this thread before uh, we maybe move on is that there's no skill required here to progress in terms of like twitch action or, you know, something that you would normally, um, you know, maybe think of in a more traditional gaming environment. Um, You're giving i guess sort of background advice are you a ghost are you a spirit of sort of the the events itself unfolding uh, the spirit of america in this particular <laughs> uh, narrative but it's interesting um that they sort of removed that aspect and made this game um, really accessible but at the same time um very complex you know it's the most difficult to understand unlosable game i've ever played (laughs) (laughs) that's right there isn't really a way to lose this game as brian mentioned so there's no real strategies for what you do there is a lot of choice especially with exploration um for you know not to spoil anything but kentucky route zero the zero route that you drive through is a gigantic circle and depending on how many rotations you do clockwise and counterclockwise is how you get to things and how you find some hidden explorations as well Right. I, I want to run back to the, what you said is you can't lose this game, but it's also true that you can't win it. <laughs> um, mm. uh, the, one of the very first things you uh, come across in this game is a group of people playing a board game in the basement of the first area, Equisoils. And one of them uh, that's playing the board game says, I don't think you could win this game. It's a tragedy. They're obviously talking about Kentucky Route Zero. (laughs) Um, I agree with that. Oh, and um, something I found out after I finished were those three players were mm -hmm. also the same three people in all of the interludes. That's right, yeah. Um, They're also, as I understand it, um, stand-ins for the band that performs uh, as sort of a Greek chorus for this game. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, very unconventional one, but a Greek chorus nonetheless. Uh, they're sort of a, uh, uh, a folk band called the Bedquilt Ramblers, uh, and we'll definitely link their band camp uh, because they whip ass. <laughs> oh, they sure do. Music in this game is very good. Hark the voice of Jesus calling, come and This game really goes with a theater metaphor. In some of their interviews, the uh, developers talk about how uh, the process of set building, like staging a play, really influenced how they designed certain scenes. You can see this in the change of scale that happens between a lot of these different scenes. Uh, The fact that these are scenes in acts, this is how they chose to divide up their game, not into chapters or books or anything like that, but acts and scenes. And um, in one of the interludes you see, 
um, the one in between um, Act 2 and Act 3. It's called The Entertainment. Um, there's a couple of layers to unpack here, but it really twists the boundaries between the player and an actor. Uh, so the play The Entertainment is a combination of two uh, a play and a ballet by the Kentucky playwright Lem Doolittle, who was active in the 1970s and in Act 3 is your tour guide for Hard Times Whiskey Distillery. So the entertainment is a combination of, um, it's a student production combining a ballet called the Barfly that consists of a drunk standing in the middle of a room and dancing around, which is you, the player, um, taking on that role. And then a staged play uh, about debts getting collected and tabs falling due. Uh, mm-hmm. And that play actually takes place a couple of hours before the action in Act 3. So you have a guy in the 1970s prognosticating what happens in, you know, 2000 and something. Yeah, it's interesting. There's so many things to unpack here. Like, we could probably do an hour-long podcast just on the entertainment, honestly. Um, <laughs> like, this this interlude is incredible. Favorite one for me. Yeah, I, I would say it's probably a unanimous favorite across the board, but just maybe we could dive in a little bit on this one because it's such an interesting story. I mean, everyone in this story is completely fucked. Um, <laughs> Almost <laughs> Evelyn's <everyone>. husband. <laughs> yeah, Evelyn's husband is out of town cheating. Larry and his wife are lushes that can't support their habit. I think Evelyn is worse. It's not that her husband's out of town cheating, but that she wants him to be out of town cheating. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, they're you know they're they're decaying. You know they're rapidly sort of falling into decline as an entire crowd at this bar. And um, anyway, Larry and and his wife, their daughter is kicking them off the feed bag. You know she's the only one in the family with a steady job. And the bartender Harry, uh, he uh, keeps talking about this vacation that he clearly didn't go on. He just closed the bar for a week and stayed inside and watched nature documentaries. <laughs> It's just interesting. There's there's a lot to unpack here. It's the perfect sort of consolidation of so many themes in this game about decline and decay and debt. And at the end of it, there's just sort of this wonderful, um, you know, culminating action of uh, everyone turning towards the door and the boys from Hard Times, the distillery, that is the only thing they pour at this bar, coming to have the debts paid due. Mm-hmm. It was a great moment. I th- yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it worked really well just as a stage production, too. But to see that inside a video game um, where this didn't really have any of the main characters in from Kentucky Route Zero, but it worked so well as a compliment to the piece. Mm-hmm. It does. It, it sort of serves to flesh out the world, one. It also serves as just a fascinating way to portray a play in digital media i mean this is a thing that could literally only exist in a digital media there is no way for one uh to play as a person in a play as a viable means of entertainment right like you cannot be the bar fly you you can't go to like um a theater somewhere in brooklyn and be like i want to uh, witness the entertainment as the barfly. You you could not pay any amount of money to do that. Not only that, but there are digital elements such as the reviews. If you look towards the audience that unfold in real time, that just simply can't be done in you know real non virtual reality augmented space. 
it's interesting how they chose to do that, that you could go back and look at the audience as well. Like if I was going to try to make the entertainment as a piece, I don't think I would have allowed the camera to go off the stage. You'd have to look at it the whole time. But but it was such a good idea. Yeah, because it's like you see the world that's being created in two. You don't just see the play. You see the play as a play. This is a thing that can be extrapolated out into all of Kentucky Route Zero, because there's so many elements of this game that resemble poetry or a stage performance. But if it's either one of those things, it's a really long one of those things, right? It's an epically long poem, or the longest play that's ever been written or staged. But... It's actually a pretty average length video game, right? You can beat this game in like 10 hours, beat, quote unquote. (laughs) Um, And I think that is another thing that just makes this, you know, if you're asking why is this a video game, that's why, because it's completely undoable as a poem or a stage play. There's an amount of non-linearity that you get in a video game that is impossible to get in other media. You're absolutely right, and it's... There's so much, there, there's a ton of non-linearity here, and it's to the point where I will once again say that no two players will have the exact same game with the exact same outcomes. And I think two people, for example, you and I, could probably take entirely different things from this game based on uh, the stage directions, for lack of a better word, that we're giving throughout the course of it. I think it's interesting to point out, too, that there are certain points where you do make um, maybe not meaningful choices to the plot, but you decide where the action goes. I'm thinking about Act 4 and specifically going down the river. Um, You're probably presented with a dozen or so choices where it's like, hey, do you want to see this scene over here or do you want to do this thing over here? Yeah, and, and a lot of those are between, you know, go see this new set piece or this new... Um, area and find out more about these characters or hang back on the boat uh the mucky mammoth uh, as it is and learn more about the people that stay behind to learn more about the history of the echo the river that you're sailing on and the mucky mammoth itself and in some of those scenes you also learn a bit about the the future areas that you're going to be uh you know dealing with in act five so there's a nice dichotomy there you know you can choose to follow the characters that you care about and this game does have some really endearing characters so by the time act four rolls around you've been introduced to a bunch of them and you get to sort of choose who you continue to explore uh, personality wise which i really like there was a huge variety of characters i actually think that there were too many new characters every act had new faces for you to follow uh and it's kind of like, a, I don't know, you've seen Game of Thrones before. It's, it's great, wonderful. But when a new season starts and you're like, who are all these new people? Specifically Clara. I never really cared about Clara. <laughs> <laughs> when she came in, I'm just like, eh, that's another Wait, person. who is Clara? The Thereminist. <laughs> Thereminist? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Thereminist is, a, I think that's the right word. But no, you're, you're right. I think, I think they hit their stride once they introduce maybe the first um, six or so characters. And, you know, you're introduced initially to Conway, uh, sort of our delivery man, um, you know, delivery man, every man who's charged with the initial delivery to five Dogwood Drive, as we mentioned up top. He's, you know, as you find out, a recovering alcoholic, and uh, he's seeing if he can beat it long term. Uh, And surprise, things do not go great (laughs) for him. (laughs) 
Yeah. But like no. Brian said before, it's a tragedy. Yeah, it's a, you can't win. Um, the next person you're introduced to is sort of your, uh, I guess, the person who sort of begins to take center stage as you move on, Shannon, who uh, has lost most of her family. She runs a TV repair shop, and some of the newer models are, you know, uh, just not really jiving with her. So she is basically running a business that's slowly becoming defunct, and she's unable to support her lease as a result of that. But yeah, if you go back to Shannon's workshop, the locks have been changed by the dirty, scummy landowners. Yep, that's very true. Uh, the next person you meet is Shannon's um, cousin, Weaver, who I guess it's not really clear if you meet or not. She's sort of a semi-deceased, uh, I don't know, semi-present person. It's unclear to me if she's ever sort of actually corporeally real throughout this story, but she shows up over the airwaves and hacking into, you know, certain, um, you know, live TV broadcasts and just shows up in a variety of weird places throughout the story. Now, I think if I had to fault this game narratively, uh, there were two things that I didn't like about it. And they both involve some of these characters you meet in the very first act. The first is Conway. Like we said, things don't end well for him. He gets trapped in debt to the Hard Times Whiskey Distillery. And is you know it seems like he's forced to work there, although he doesn't seem so sad about it. Um, I feel like there should have been more closure on his story. Not, I'm not saying like we should have been able to go rescue him, but like I wanted more acknowledgement that he was gone and the other characters really kind of noticed this and felt this. Did you um, play the part of the story in the Echo Central Exchange uh, where he is eventually taken away? Or was that part of the Act 4 that you did not choose to attend? No, to? that was going through the... Um, that was going through the bat cave and the power, uh, mm-hmm. the telephone thing. Yeah, uh, you did see him get taken away, um, but I kind of felt like everyone after that was just like, ah, eh, shrug shoulders, keep on going. Like, um, I think I think that's kind of perfect, right? I mean, they could see the writing on the wall. I, to me, I don't think this was like a bad thing at all that they that there wasn't more of a to do about that. I think if you had been paying attention to his. Uh, demeanor his performance especially since he had gotten on the mucky mammoth like he gained a skeletal arm i don't know if you noticed that that was from the Um, medical debts yeah oh the arm too that's right yeah so the skeletal leg was there when uh, at the end of act three the arm uh had started to show up more recently after the leg and you know I think it was kind of clear to people where he, you know, where his path was leading and i think that's like part of the tragedy of this whole thing um he didn't beat it right he uh, he succumbed and he was happy to do it. I think one of the final scenes where he's speaking before going on that central exchange um, side uh, episode or side act is him and uh, Shannon on the front of the boat. And Conway says that he's happy to have the chance to repay his debts by working at uh, hard times. Forever. And he's <laughs> uh, yeah resigning himself to that fate. So I think for me, part of it was that the way I played Shannon... Shannon was like trying to cheer him up and being like, oh, we'll find Weaver at the end of this route and she'll be able to help you out. She'll be able to do this. And even if after I had her say that, she like thought to herself, oh, poor guy, he's never going to make it out of this. I hate telling him these lies to make him feel better. Then I would have been able to like see where that's going. But I guess it caught me off guard. Not that he went away, but that it was like a disappearing act. Like he wasn't part of the game anymore. 
wasn't part of the resolution of it in any way. Yeah, I, I, I hear you, and I, I can totally understand that point of view. Uh, personally, I, I kind of enjoyed that, you know, his charge was basically um, taken on by Shannon, and she and the remaining uh, crew that you have assembled throughout your journey completed the delivery on his behalf because he was unable to. And I guess maybe we should, you know, round out the remainder of that group, who includes Ezra, who we mentioned up top. A little boy ab- abandoned by his family who also happens to have a giant uh, eagle brother, as we mentioned, uh, Julian. There is uh, Junebug and Johnny, two coal mine androids who decided to get a personality. I think, if I'm reading this between the lines right, by listening to tape recordings of old minor songs that I think were done by the Marquez family. Uh, in kind of like a way this all winds back around. Um, and they are now traveling musicians. Yeah, I I definitely copied down some, some quotes here, but it, it, there's some really beautiful lines from Junebug, especially about how she um, decided to sort of make herself. She's an entire character about self-invention. She came out all gray and straight lines, and she made herself like this. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful awesome you know these are characters who bucked their designed fate and they're building their lives together you know completely against what they're supposed to be quote unquote um and weirdly enough there's also a narrative with them about being young people who are getting older and deciding whether or not they want to uh, add a third which i guess is quote unquote adding a kid um not the swinger connotation (laughs) (laughs) And despite the game's kind of flat, sometimes obscure visual style, it's pretty clear, as you mentioned, that they're not exactly human, Johnny and Junebug. Uh, well, there's that and the creaking and whirring every time they walk. Um, <laughs> Good little bit of sound design there. It is. And in terms of that visual design, I think this game has a super interesting look. It's low poly, but it's not retro or minimalist to my eye. Uh, it's used to like such incredible effects so frequently that I can't really understand it as anything but, like, just very intentional. You know what I mean? I feel like it's a very painterly style. Like, it uses a lot of simple shapes and polygons, um, but it's not using them in a standard kind of, like, 3D object modeling sort of way. Uh, Their detail is more to shape and to color as opposed to texture and um, high resolution in the models. Yeah, and it it often relies on really striking set pieces and like visual allegory, right? Like I think the visual style can best be described as like intensely staged. Yeah, like I was talking about before with set design, uh, Mm -hmm. very prominent in how they decided to show things. Yeah, it's it's very cool. Like it's flat like a theater set, you know, lots of shadows, lots of, you know, forced perspective, but to a very specific effect very intentional lighting this is seen so many different times from like the first scenes where you're on a highway and they're using headlights to light uh, very dramatic images of horses all the way down into the caves where you're seeing you know light from uh, natural or unnatural sources you know slowly illuminating things that you're maybe not supposed to see Hmm. very striking visual style for sure
you know, it's funny that we, we can spend so little time on a thing that's so prominent with the game, but, you know, there's so many other structural elements to this besides just its visual aspects that I want to continue moving and, and talk a bit about, like, how this game is structured more broadly than just visually, you know? Mm-hmm. I think one of the big things about this game was its episodic delivery. Uh, not only in how it structured individual acts, but also in the amount of time that passed between different episodes coming out. The developers came up with new ideas. Like they said, they moved from being more puzzle-based to being more mystery-based. Um, and they built that into the acts. So Act 1 feels very different than Act 4 or 5. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And there, it also, I mean, a great deal of time had passed between the two, right? True. I mean, as you said, delivered episodically. The first act came out in 2013. I believe the, you know, the fourth hasn't come, or the fifth didn't come out until 2020. But the fourth, I think, was way back in 2016, right? Yeah, so obviously a lot has happened in the real world as well in between 2011 and 2020. Yeah, it's funny, like, thinking about when this game started and what was going on in the world. We were in, you know, the peak of reckoning with the great financial crisis and the stock market crash of 2008. But, you know, if I'm thinking about, like, social movements going on at the time, there was things like... um, Occupy Wall Street. uh, Obviously, uh, that has come and gone in the years since. But, you know, in the, also in the time since, a, a great number of other social movements have risen up with uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, all of the, you know, more nefarious social movements on the, on the right, uh, you know, conspiracy theories and things that we've alluded to in, in other discussions we've had. But it's, um, it's interesting just to think about how much the world has changed over the course of this game's development, but also the fact that their message and the trajectory that they have shown America to be on has stayed true. So there are a lot of great moments in this game. I think um, kind of like aesthetically the Hall of the Mountain King with that giant tower of flaming computers is one of my favorite uh, parts of the game, but uh, there's a couple other things I want to draw your attention to. Uh, the first is in Act 4, when you're on the Mucky Mammoth. This is where I think the game really hit its stride in terms of conversation. Um, you'd be going around on this boat, literally going around on the boat, walking from one side to the other, and as you would do that, the character you were controlling would meet another character, and then you'd control that new character, and you'd go off and be like, you're Ezra taking um, recordings of the different sounds the boat makes, or you're Shannon going down to check out some uh, an old TV that's in the break room or things like that. And this was a point of the game where I think it was the most fluid and shifting between the characters. It, it happened so naturally. It happened so, it was so well done. Um, I think it was a highlight of the game for me. Yeah, when they let you shift that perspective and embody a new character, um, it's really interesting because they're always using it to the effect of allowing you to see how a different character would have reacted, maybe in the place of uh, the character you were 
controlling beforehand, or simply just to allow you to, um, you know, flesh out the story of the, the character that they've decided to let you embody at that point. Um, there's so many reasons that they shift perspective in this game. Sometimes it's to allow you to choose song lyrics because there's a, a character performing uh, in one of my absolute favorite scenes of the entire game where Junebug and Johnny are performing in a dingy bar to basically just their uh, friends and travel companions. And for lack of a better word, it teleports you to an entire other plane of existence. You know, it's a wonderful scene. Oh yeah, it's a great scene. The you know the ceilings open up above you, and you see the stars and uh, the night sky and all that. And it's really interesting. Yeah, you get to choose the lyrics of the song, what comes next, and set the tone of the song. It's um, it's a melancholy song, whatever you choose to sing, um, but you do get to choose the lyrics on the way. It reminds me of um, one of the very first things you do in the game is that old man at Equus Oils tells you that, uh, you know, you can find the directions to Dogwood Drive on his computer. He doesn't remember what the password is, but it's one of them poem thingies. And you go onto the computer and you compose a poem. And I think that's almost a summation of the weirdness of Kentucky Route Zero. They're putting right on Front Street what this game is all about. You know, everything from the poem you're writing to all of a sudden a, a random bar performance revealing the secrets of the universe to you and, you know, allowing you to transcend time and space. It's all super real. You know, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary reality. It's magical realism. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of hyper-reality I think I've heard it described as before. Hyper-reality. That's a good way to put it, yeah. It's like everything is, you know, it becomes... Um, you see so many surprises and so many unexpected things that eventually you're just kind of like, oh, this is where we're going now. Yeah, and I think that that is probably why I think it has allowed it to sort of stay apace with all of the craziness of today's day and age, because there's a lot of things that seem like hyper real and way too on the nose about today's society as well. Like some things that you see in the news, you simply cannot believe for how, like, brazen and you know unbelievable they are in terms of I, I don't know a variety of different things whether it be you know pure chicanery that's going on or pure you know vice or greed or anything you know just it's unbelievable sometimes what what is going on in our today's day and age and the only way to I guess top that is to go completely outside of reality and uh, you know retreat to the land of metaphor in magical realism My, one other favorite scene I have is that whole Act 5. Uh, throughout the game, for most of the game, you're playing as Conway, an old man, alcoholic, and then his leg gets busted up. You play slow. You walk around slow. Everything's so 
hard, takes a long time to get to. But in Act Five, you it opens up and you're a you're a stray cat, and you can just bound and leap around the entire level. And it was almost like a pure moment of joy you have just moving from one place to another and absorbing the different conversations that the characters are having. Yeah, there's a lot of things I love about Act 5, and I think, you know, the fact that it's a a group of people um, that you're just observing, right? As you said, you're a cat, you're an outsider, or maybe not an outsider, but not a participant in Mm -hmm. the group who is dealing with the flood and organizing the town around the house at Dogwood Drive to sort of deal with the fallout. Um, It's a really interesting act because it's an area that seems like an oasis from what's going on in the rest of the game. For one thing, the sun is shining, you know, you're out of the darkness. Mm-hmm. Two, there's no roads that lead to it except the sort of tower of stairs uh, in a spiral that you climbed basically out of a Indian burial mound uh coming into the, you know, the sunshine of of the uh the town that you you end up in in Act 5. And then finally, it's um, a place that's already been occupied and abandoned by the corporate influences that are, you know, running amok over the rest of um, the world of Kentucky Route Zero. It's really um, a nice encapsulation of like what is allowing this place to stay alive. You know, the people there, uh, the the bonds that they've formed, and you know, there's so many things in this game that have told us that it is, you know the American dream that has sort of gone awry. There's, uh, you know, bad actors in corporate capitalism that are just sort of wrecking the world of this particular area of Kentucky. But the interesting thing about how it says all of these things is it's not speaking at you from an ideological perspective. There's no reference of the word capitalism in the script of this game, to my knowledge, but they are literally showing you in every breath its effects. The corpses it leaves behind. Mm-hmm. It's it's more concerned with the effects on day-to-day people, and I think that's what makes it so effective, right? It's not preaching at you. It's not, um, you know, quoting Marx or anything. It is um, showing you about the effects of, you know, financialization of the healthcare market and uh, what it means to be in debt up to your eyeballs <laughs> and, you know, what choices that leads you to make uh, when your choices are limited. There was a great moment in the interlude, the entertainment, um, when some of the characters are talking about, oh yeah, my boss, the financier, he's talking about new financial technologies, uh, like collateralized debt. And just that phrase, financial technologies, sends a little bit of a shiver up my spine. Like, they're coming up with new (laughs) ways to fuck you over, and they're fucking space age things. Yeah, I mean this this game is really about like the the effects of financialization hell on uh on world or on the world. It's uh, a world that's run by rent seekers, right? Like um there's many examples of this throughout um the game. It's it starts way in the past with company towns and scrip and the first mine that you're in basically being the site of a mass uh, grave of miners because they didn't have enough company tokens to uh, power the water pumps uh, and air (laughs) air pumps at the same time and so they drown couldn't afford the air they were breathing and then even to the modern day like the hard times whiskey distillery that conway ends up being entrapped in um, they make 
whiskey barrels from coffins and possibly corpses as well. Like, this is not a gentle look at capitalism by any means. No, but at the same time, it, re- it refuses to sort of, uh, I don't know, directly name it. I mean, if you have half a brain, you can understand what they're getting at here. But it's it's very interesting to me that they continue to just focus on the people. Yeah, they're not making ideological arguments about like, oh, the free market is good because of free market this or invisible hand that. They're like, here's a bunch of ruined lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't offer folks solutions about what um, ails them in this story. It doesn't say, here's how to fix, overthrow, or solve the situation you're in. Um, It's not on its face anti-capitalist, but, you know, I don't know about you, but I know a ton of people that um, would say they're stressed, burnt out, or trying to muddle through, but I don't know a ton of people who would identify as (laughs) anti-capitalist. That's a good point. That's a good point. So I guess I guess that's kind of the story of KRZ, right? It's not about like discussing the economic merits about what's going on here. It's about people who are striving for happiness, for striving for home, striving for, you know, any sort of rest and scrutinizing themselves relentlessly if they're unable to do it. And the the contradiction of life that, you know, keeps them sort of uh, I guess categorized according to their worth, according to their economic output that's preventing them from achieving that. I'll tell you, here's how I take the whole American dream lost thing and the whole capitalism theme. Uh, There's a genre of fiction known as Southern Gothic, best exemplified by Faulkner and uh, Flannery O'Connor. And if I had to describe it, I would say that Southern Gothic is about the South after the Civil War, where because it lost the war, its quote-unquote moral center fell away. But really, there was no moral center there at all. And you kind of have these ruins of great families who were really, like, not great in the first place. So I don't think Kentucky Route Zero is Southern Gothic. It's almost more of an American Gothic. like Appalachian Gothic. Now, here's the capitalist order that we're supposed to live on, and the promises it made to us and then looking back at the destruction of that or the destruction it leaves behind and realizing it was never that great to begin with it's highlighting all of the 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 byproducts of living under this type of system right um the way that uh debt haunts most of the people that you meet in one way or another they're you know just sort of chilling in the ruins of their former lives drifting Hmm rather untethered from place to place you know i don't know uh if you ever you ever go to anyone's house in this game except the marquez house which is um you know for lack of a better word abandoned well there is a museum of dwellings which was put up there probably by the power company and people started living inside the houses inside the museum of dwellings i thought that was a nice little touch that whole series with the Museum of Dwellings is also a thing about displacement, right? I mean, literally, they um, are taking these people, moving them away from their homes to a place where they can be observed um, as part of a, an attraction, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't know. It's an, <laughs> it's an interesting um, metaphor, too. I'm not exactly sure what it's trying to say, but you mentioned the power company, and the power company, Consolidated Power, is sort of a consistent presence throughout this entire game. 
and they uh, basically are very close with the boys from Hard Times. Um, they also are the people who basically underwrite the medicine that Conway gets. Uh, an interesting <laughs> thing is right as the, uh, the medicine he gets, uh, Neripnol TM, uh, is being applied. The world fades out to black, and the doctor who gave it to him starts discussing the payment plan, which, of course, he's completely unconscious to hear. Uh, something about how it'll be paid through his power bill from here on out. I love that little touch right there. And the doctor's like, I don't understand how this works. <laughs> yeah, but he also said it's the only way that he could escape his uh, incredible amount of medical debt was to begin prescribing it to people. Um, <laughs> so it's just, you know, it, it, they have everyone by the balls. Um, and that's sort of just the story of, of this area is that it's uh, a fiefdom controlled by a consolidated power and their vassal, uh, Hard Times Liquor. That's why I kind of think the fifth act was more hopeful than the ones before. Like, um, from terms of the movement, instead of playing a slow and injured old man, you're a happy little cat chasing a dragonfly. Um, The (laughs) idea of this is a town where there's no roads leading to it, roads being like the um, bringing capitalism and bringing everything else with it. So it's a kind of little abandoned paradise. Hmm. An economic artery, sure. Yeah, and the and the people that you've been traveling with, uh, I think you can decide whether they stick around or whether they move on. But just that this is one of the choices that you have that they can stick around and try to form their own community over here is it's a lot ho- more hopeful than I expected the game to end. I agree, and even though you can have people choose to move on, I think you know I I personally. Um, you know, given people's current situations, I think there were some people I chose to, or, you know, directed to be staying and some that I thought it would be better if they didn't. But as a capstone on the themes of the game, I think it functioned really well. You know, it encapsulates the uncertainty of the lives of the cast we've been following. And it allows you to sort of have the final director's touch in nudging them in the direction that's going to dictate the rest of their lives. It gives you a little bit of closure about how it goes. The game ends on the funeral of two wild horses that drowned in the flood. Um, And it ends with a memorial service before people go and do a concert at the very stage-like Dogwood Drive. And I think before that uh, final scene, you do get sort of a uh, gospel... Um, service, uh, the song I'm Going That Way, performed by Emily Cross, sung during the funeral, um, which I think maybe gives us a good opportunity to talk about some of the music in this game, uh, performed by the Bedquilt Ramblers, who I think I mentioned earlier. But they've had a few instances, uh, roughly one per act, where they pop in and give a song uh, to the the crowd just to sort of underscore what's happening in the the you know main action at that point. I think the one I remember best about this is at the end of Act 4, where they sing, This world is not my home, as Shannon gets back onto the mucky mammoth uh, after losing Conway to the boys from hard times. This world is not my home I'm just passing through My treasures and my hope our place beyond the blue many friends and kin have gone on before and 
I'm seeing it now, and I think I didn't listen to the song as much or something there. That I think that might have been the emotional punch I was looking for, but I just didn't read it at the time. I think, honestly, Act 5, to me, functioned as more of an epilogue. Um, the end of Act 4 was the end of the tragedy of this story. You know, Conway's fall, um, the, the crew at Samonidas sort of you know, regrouping after, you know, the the time traveling along the Echo and Shannon realizing that she's never going to see one of the people she had caught, you know, come to see as found family at the time ever again. And, you know, um, that song comes in and yeah, you're right. It's the emotional gut punch of the uh, the game, maybe up until the, the funeral, which although it's just for two horses, it's still also a tear-jerking moment. Well, it's not just for two horses. I mean... It's for the town, it's for Conway, it's for everything that's been lost on the way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You see the ghosts of the town's past filling in the aisles, so to speak, as that song's being sung. Yeah, I guess I was saying about what it was on the surface. Obviously, if you're you're reading into the event and the history, it's much more. <laughs> I can read um, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, we all have our moments. Um but no, you're you're absolutely right, and it's a it's a fascinating moment, and I think those two, you know, I think, I think maybe why I think of Act Five as more of a an epilogue is because it's so tonally different. Yes, very different tone. From the lighting, from the um, <clears throat> from the control mechanism, from the way it's staged, the way it's presented, it is telling its own sort of in a wholly encapsulated story on its own and it's nicely set up by the interlude that comes before it um the interlude un pueblo de nada which has the sort of tv station uh you know sort of operating during the storm that brings about the flood that sets the act five uh, events in motion one interesting thing when you're talking about the staging of act five is i believe the camera angle is a whole 360 view and that's kind of like the first open camera in the in the game. Obviously, it forms a circle around everything, but even on the parts before where it's been a kind of rotational camera, like the Hall of the Mountain King, it's all been going around a single point. And here, it's like the horizon is the limit. Yeah, it, it, it does allow you to as much as anything does in this game, explore uh, an open space, which is nice. You know, you're given a bit of freedom in how you um, move around. Not that you haven't been given freedom before, but it it feels different, right? You're in open air. Sunshine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you said, you can see the, you can see the horizon. Um, It's an intensely beautiful part of the game too. I think they have definitely gotten their artistic chops under them with (laughs) how they were uh, staging things throughout this game. Uh, by this point and it shows you know i can understand why this took some more time it's bigger it's more complex than anything that's come before it and they do really interesting things with allowing you to see the perspective of this place over time and you know how it evolved from uh basically a company town to uh what it is now as artist commune not just uh the company town but it's past before that where there were a couple people living there or even uh, back to the natives who lived there before anybody moved in. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, the point uh, is well taken as the 
centerpiece of the town is an Indian burial mound. You basically emerge from that uh, that tower, that uh, Indian burial ground, which in Act 4 was called the Silo of Late Reflections, and the group sort of looks around and realizes that that spiral staircase up is the only path available, so, you know, they unpack that truck full of <laughs> the things that Conway was supposed to deliver and hoof it on up and emerge into this town. Good on Shannon for being able to carry all that furniture up what must have been at least... 50 flights of stairs my goodness and they uh they kind of lampshade it by being like oh yeah i uh carry tvs around all the time yeah she's got quads of steel they didn't mention (laughs) the fact that she carried like two sofas and an armoire i know a little different than a large i know they made tvs big back in the day but (laughs) she's carrying like gigantic back projected tvs all over the place and we just didn't know it um that's i mean maybe we can just chalk that up to magical realism as well (laughs) (laughs) now one interesting little bit of lore is that this isn't actually an indian burial ground although several characters think it is it's actually a set of directions for how to navigate the zero and i would bet Hmm. dollars to donuts that if you followed this map in act one two or three then you would i don't know find some interesting shit in there somewhere that's interesting. I wonder if anyone's tried that. Uh, I certainly haven't because I didn't even clock that when I, I played this game or this uh, particular act myself. As we finished off the events of Act 5 and you know, find ourselves at Five Dogwood Drive and have made decisions about uh, all of our you know, newfound friends and characters' paths forward in their lives, um, we see the game drawing to a close. And as hard as this game is to draw to a close, I think it's going to be equally as hard for us to draw this podcast to a close, knowing there's always going to be things unsaid about this <laughs> game, given how dense it is. But um, we're going to try our best to sum it up with uh, a quick three-word review. So my three-word review for Kentucky Route Zero is A Cavern Deeper. This game is a great look at where video games have been before and a response to that and where they could be in the future. In terms of seeing where the player is and examining that player relationship to the different characters they control at different times. The game draws from a vast array of influences, such as one of the first video games, I believe it was called Cave Adventure, was supposed to be set in Kentucky's Mammoth Caves, which is also nearby where this game takes place. It goes from that, it draws from a huge variety of artistic media, uh, from the excellent uh, music of the bluegrass band Bed Quilt Ramblers, to the different plays that go on within the game, uh, the poetry, the installation art exhibitions that it shows you. The developers clearly are in touch and have their pulse on the world of art. And they made this game as a entry into that world, and I think it succeeded admirably. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So, my three-word review is Echoes of Tomorrow. Playing Kentucky Route Zero in 2021 is to bear witness to the fact that almost all of the bizarre and allegorical effects of capitalism on society portrayed by the game have come to pass in more concrete, real-world terms today. 
The massive consolidation of corporations, the financialization of everything, and a continued hollowing out and cheapening of the value of the working class, just to name a few. Too many people hold the belief that if you're poor, it's your own fault, and you must endlessly introspect about why it's so, and then pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's a poisonous mindset, and it's harmed a lot of people. Conway's a classic example of this, and by the end of Act 4, Kentucky Route Zero doesn't have a main character as a result. However, it has gained about six others along the way. In Act 5, in my opinion, the player is shown the answer to how to rebuff that destruction. Community. Community is what we see in Act 5. They're struggling to get by. They're making art in the face of insurmountable oppression. And fresh off their most recent disaster, they're trying their best to put things back together. But if the performance of Junebug and Johnny at the lower depths has taught us anything, it's that art allows us to transcend even the most dire surroundings. Kentucky Rod Zero uses the past echoes of artists, creators, and others throughout history to tell us what is happening on the ground in America today. It tells us what to guard against and what to prepare for. Find your community and support it with all you can. And with that, we'll close out our discussion of Kentucky Route Zero. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on hoping for a better tomorrow. Brother of five, the savior today. Risking your soul for the things that decay. Oh, if today God should call you away, what would you Now the biggest question about Kentucky Route Zero, what did you name your dog? Oh, it was definitely blue for me, but I totally understand the people that went Homer. Oh, definitely went with Homer. I could tell this was going to be epic, especially with that hat (laughs) that dog was wearing. Unsung hero. I think the hat to me was what tipped me off to blue, right? Like this is a, a dog who's, you know, I think they said the dog and the straw hat have both seen better days. <laughs> and, you know, that to me like signaled, all right, this is about decline. And when I think about decline, I think about blue or old blue. And if I'm thinking about the movie Old School, Blue. You're my boy. He's an old, you're my boy, Blue. Yeah. And, you know, that, that all just sort of immediately clicked in my brain, but to your point, the epicness in Homer, and yes, this game is an epic, so I get it. <laughs> Hot take. People who are focused on the past chose Blue at that moment. People who are focused on the future chose Homer. Uh, explain. Why is that? Well, like you said, Blue is like the looking back sort of thing. And Homer is like, <laughs> I'm going out of fucking Odyssey right here. I'm about to get <laughs> it's started. It's time to start my journey. Uh, which, which ended up being more true? I guess I'd have to go Blue. Not that I'm ever going to change my dog's name, but... <laughs> See, playing this game again, which I'm definitely going to do one day, but playing this game again, uh, playing this game again um, I think Blue, that beaten-down dog with the beaten-down owner, mm-hmm. rings truer to me. I agree, and I think uh, I'm glad I made the right choice the first time, as I always do. <laughs> Yeah, if only that were true. Yeah, it's it's interesting that they let you make such a uh, you know quick choice, and we're not even talking about the third choice, which is I don't know its name. It just follows around, or it's just there, or oh, you know something like that. I'm not a monster. 
Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, who makes that choice? It's got to be, like, I wish... I know this game doesn't do the whole tracking and, you know, all the shit that the Telltale games and Walking Dead did, but if it did, I want to know what percentage chose that <laughs> third choice for the dog. <laughs> no one I want to be friends with, I'll tell you that. What would you give in exchange for your soul? Oh, if today God should call you little extra dev lore that I found uh, that I dug up was that this game kind of started from actually a platformer and one of the mechanics of the platformer was that your companions of which you could have two would grant you different abilities so the original June bug was gonna let you talk to computers because you know she's a robot yeah, I I, I uh, saw that too. I think it was from a, a GDC talk or something, but that this was supposed to be like a basic Metroidvania sort of game and then somehow evolved into this, <laughs> which, boy, I mean... What an evolution. Yeah, talk about an evolution. That's really something. You can read it on its surface. Um, it's a story about struggle and decay. You can read it um, a little deeper, and it's a story about decline, loss. You can read it any which way and find something new to, to discover. There's just a million things to unpack here. A lot of them are surprises and things you'll never come across, even in many playthroughs. And, you know, that to me is is cool. Like surprises we found in this game, or...? No, just surprises in general. Like, if I'm thinking about, like, great surprises in games, like, I think uh, earlier in the cast I said, sometimes it's a good idea to hide your light under a bushel. <laughs> <laughs> and um, games that did this that I really like, um, I can think of two, like, right off the top of my head. One is um, Frog Fractions. I haven't played it. I have heard. Yeah, so it's a game that, like, on its face is very basic, you know, web game, um, R.I.P. Flash but um, then becomes something much, much more in, you know, if you stick around and dig a little deeper and, you know, it unpeels itself like an onion. But if you, uh, you know, if you were just taking it at surface level value, you would think it was really nothing. The other is like, I'm thinking about Dark Souls and there's um, the level inside the portrait. Wow, how can I not remember this? Uh-oh, I'm taking away your Dark Souls card. Yeah, I know. The Painted World of Ariamis, which um, is DLC, but if you were to buy the game today in its remastered forms, you could easily miss on the way through the game. And it is probably, in my opinion, one of the best levels in the entire game. So this is, like, again, I mentioned earlier, just game designers who have so many good ideas, they don't care if some players don't see absolutely every single one of them. And I... I think that's like a cool artistic choice to make. It's kind of a flex, honestly. <laughs> I don't even think it's necessary. I mean, 
Yes, kudos to these guys for having so many awesome game ideas, but it's almost a different philosophy of game design. If you say games should be about exploration, about player choice, then players making choices you don't like is an implicit part of that sort of thing. Like, they aren't going to check yep. out this painting, or they aren't going to check out this route off of the zero. You know, that's something they, most of them may, might even choose to do, but... To have that option, to allow that surprise, you have to have faith in those that will go and do that themselves. That's a good point. It's it's as much having faith in your players as it is having faith in the design of your work. And maybe we're just taking this from two different perspectives, that of the game designer and that of the game player. <laughs> uh, it's a nice dichotomy you and I have. Take care, but also give up and work for a distillery. <laughs> or take care, but not of your liver. <laughs> Fifteen tons and what do you get? Another year older and deeper in debt. I've heard of a land of joy and peace and wonderful life. A beautiful place of mansions fair and skies so bright where all who believe the savior dear forever shall stay and having been saved by grace divine i'm going that way i'm going that way i'm going that way Yes, dear, the Savior I adore is with me each day. I'm clinging to Him and never to stray. Just sing and praise is all.